good morning. Now, I know that people say they're traveling this morning. We've got people in Myrtle Beach, and we've got people at weddings and everything else, but I find it a little bit odd that last week I tell everybody that my sermon is entitled Money, 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 and all of a sudden people flee. I mean, bowling, really? Bowling? Anyway, well, when your old bank accounts are full and theirs isn't, then they'll you only have themselves to blame, right? I'm joking on that. Okay, so this morning, as we uh, embark on a three-week study of money, um, I want to kind of give a little bit of just a, a, I want to preface this with sort of a, um, I don't, I don't want to say an explanation, but I want to, this message, these messages are going to be hopefully quite different than what you've heard in the past. Um, oftentimes when we get into money, uh, there will be like one sermon and it will be because the pastor's obligated to preach on money once a year to raise money, right? I mean, that's, that's the goal, right? That's not the aim of these messages. The aim of these messages are not for us to fill the tithing plates. The aim of these messages are not for you to fill your bank accounts. That's not the point of this. In fact, when Scripture talks about money, it's rarely, it rarely has anything to do with that concept of gaining wealth. Oftentimes, when Scripture is talking about money, it's about the dangers of gaining wealth and the dangers of hoarding wealth. And when I say wealth, I don't mean just dollar bills. I don't just mean change. I mean wealth and everything that comes with that. So everything that, that we gain from wealth. And so this morning and the next two Sundays, what I really want us to do is I want us to look at money uh, and the principle of money, spending money, saving money, and using money for the good of the kingdom. And so it's three parts. This morning, it's how money relates to personal discipleship. Next week, it's going to be how money relates to the life of the church. And then finally, how money relates to world evangelism. And so I hope that after... Now, I do hope that when we're done with this, that because of that maybe our relationship to wealth may change a little bit. Our, our, our views of wealth may change a little bit. That may cause us to alter our behaviors, which will make money less of a, what many consider a stressful thing. Because if you ask people what are the top three stresses in life, money is usually one of them. Usually it's money, it's health, and then if you're a parent, it's usually kids, all right? Because, I mean, that's just the way it is, all right? Sometimes jobs are thrown in there as well. But we don't want money to be something that we're anxious about. We don't want money being something that directs, that drives our activities, what we want is we want the Lord and we want His Word to drive our activities. That's what we want. But far too often, even with Christians, 
It's money that drives our activities. We do or we don't do, and it's based on finances. And we need to reverse that. The second thing I want to acknowledge, and that I'm highly aware of, is that it is easy to talk about money when you have some money. That's just true. If you have an individual who, not because of, 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 of poor decisions or, or frivolous living, has come into a situation where the next meal on their table is dependent on that last dime that's in their checking account or under their couch cushion, that some of these principles are going to be very difficult or going to seem difficult, especially if you look at money as merely a practical exchange of goods. And so that's what I want to avoid this morning. I want to avoid this idea that, well, this sermon is only for those who have money in the bank. Or this sermon is only for those who have discretionary spending. Or this sermon is only for those who, have, who, who don't live on a fixed income. This message is for everyone. Whether you have a dime in your bank account or not. So the title of this morning's message is The Lord is My Helper, and we are taking it from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Let me read that. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this day of consumerism, in this day of outrageous spending, discussion of inflation, discussion of recession, with rampant poverty, a discussion on money from the pulpit can sometimes seem insensitive. if not outright self-serving. So, Father, this morning I pray that you would be with me as I preach your word, and I pray that as we discuss the concept of money and wealth, that we are not focused on the practicalities first, but that we are focused on the heart of Scripture, 
and our relationship with you as it pertains to wealth, money, and finances. And Father, if we are out of balance in how we associate with those things, Father, I pray that you would correct us. Lord, let us not be anxious about anything, including our bank account, our wealth, our riches. Let us recognize that just as you told Joshua as he was leading the Israelites into Canaan after the death of Moses, you told him, I will never leave nor forsake you. Let us, Lord, as believers, cling to that promise when it comes to these things that we are talking about this morning. Bless us, O Lord. We give you all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are stewards, not owners. We are stewards, not owners. I read that phrase. I was trying to figure out how I could drive home this point, and I was really having trouble, which really bothered me because I like to sometimes consider myself a bit of a wordsmith, and so when I can't find the right phrase, it just drives me nuts. My wife knows very good and well that when I was in seminary writing papers that, that I could write a paper very fast, I was, I was The Lord gifted me with that ability, but there were times where I would sit and I would just look at the screen and, and, and just fret over one sentence because it had to be just right. And this is why I will probably never write a book. It's because it would take me too long thinking about one particular word. And so I was struggling over this, and so I was looking online about just some different concepts as the church relates to money. And I read this one article, and forgive me, I can't remember where it was, but the, the author made this claim, and I'm paraphrasing his sentence, to say that we are stewards of wealth, we are not owners of wealth. And that is contrary to what our culture, especially in the United States, says. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain this a little bit more. We hear stories all the time of the dangers of money. You've heard the stories of the fellow who wins the Powerball, right? The, the, the way it goes is you win the Powerball, and whether you take it as a lump sum or payments over 20 years, you win the, lump, you, you win the Powerball, now you're a millionaire, but then your entire life begins to collapse around you. Right? We've heard that story. It's, it's happened more than once. In fact, VH1 could do one of those things like lottery winners. Where are they now? Right? And most likely, it would be somewhat depressing. Now, I'm not going to try to imagine why that is, why that seems to be common, but I think it has something probably to do with the way we as a culture look at money because we look at it as if we are owners of it 
and not simply stewards of our finances. And so I told Jackson this past week that I was going to be preaching on money. We had a daddy day. Uh, Crystal and a couple uh, girlfriends went to Cincinnati to, uh, to, uh, to a Beth Moore conference. And so Friday night and Saturday, it was sort of daddy day with me and Jackson. Um, and uh, I, I was just talking to him in the car. I said, I'm going to be preaching on money. And, um, and Jackson looked at me. Now, I'm going to tell him, Jackson, that I, I told Jackson what I was going to tell you all this morning. He says, I didn't come up with that. That was Drake that came up with that. Which I, I really appreciate Jackson not claiming credit. And so I told Drake what I was going to say, and he says, I got that off the Internet. And so anyway, the Internet's really smart, folks. But I'm going to say this as if Jackson came up with it, okay? So forgive me. So I told Jackson what I was going to be doing, and he quickly looked at me and smiled and said, Dad, did you know that money can buy happiness? Now, we were getting ready to have, we were going to pause the car right on the side of the street, and I was going to give him a little bit of a preview of the sermon, all right? But he had that kind, of, that kind of mischievous smile, so you knew something was up. I said, no, hon, no, you can't buy happiness. And he looked at me with a smile, and he said, yes, you can. You can buy a happy meal. And he just laughed, and it was that laugh that you knew that he was going to try to rule the world someday. Now, I believe it's important to clarify at the outset of this message and this sermon series that money is not the problem. It's not. Money is not the problem. Things are not the problem. Stuff is not the problem. How we relate to money is the real problem. How we associate with it. Our philosophy concerning money is the challenge in which we need to overcome. In fact, many of us probably need to relearn, based on biblical principles, how we relate to money. Whether you have a little or whether you have a lot. Money, like trees and plants and animals and the universe itself, is simply part of the created order. It's an object. And objects don't have inherent moral value. They just are. Most objects, I should say. There are some objects that are created specifically because of moral, or I should say immoral, value. But objects are just objects. And as a created object within the providence of God, money is given to us to steward, not to own. It's given to us to steward. What does that mean? It's given to us to take care of. Everything that we have was given to us in order to utilize for kingdom purposes. And that is a very important thing to distinguish. Adam did not own the garden. He was placed in the middle of it to steward it. David did not own Israel. 
He was anointed king to lead and steward the nation, and we do not own our wealth. Let me clarify. We have been given the opportunity to earn wealth that we might steward it for the sake of kingdom purposes. Now, I want to pause because some of us might be thinking, does that mean that every dime we spend has to be some way associated with the church? That's not what I said. What I said is that your wealth has been given to you to steward for kingdom purposes. That doesn't mean that your entire paycheck goes to the church or goes to some Christian philanthropy. But it does mean that we need to reevaluate how we think about money, how we spend money, and why we are saving money. Because stewardship is not the same thing as saving. In fact, I will say this. You can be just as ungodly in your hoarding of money as you are if you are frivolously spending money. So someone might say, look at my bank account. I save every dime that I make. I do not waste my money. And what I say is, yes, you are. You are wasting your money. How is that possible? It's in my bank account. It's not being spent. Because the Lord has given you that wealth to spend for kingdom purposes, not for you to hoard so you can sit there and idolize your checkbook every time you get a statement. It's meant for kingdom purposes. Point two, our relationship to money is a measurement of our commitment to Christ. So in our text today, the author of Hebrews is informing the reader of what it looks like to be a faithful Christian. So he is coming to the end of Hebrews, and in this last chapter, he's sharing what it looks like to be a faithful Christian. And he mentions things. He says, let brotherly love continue. So first off, in order to be a loving brother or sister in Christ towards your other brothers and sisters, these are the things that you ought to do. And the Bible says in multiple areas, especially in the letters of John, that if you do not love your brother and or sister in Christ, you do not love Christ. Those two things are equated. So the question is, how do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, one, he says, being hospitable. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Not only are we supposed to be hospitable to our brothers and sisters, we're supposed to be hospitable to strangers. It says remembering those in prison, that we're supposed to remember those and treat them as if we were the ones in prison. Remember those who are mistreated in prison. Now, it is likely the author here is entertaining Christians who have been imprisoned wrongly or for their faith. And so he's saying, remember those individuals and pray for them. 
One way that we can continue brotherly love is by honoring marriage and remaining pure in the bedroom. Now, how does that have anything to do with brotherly love? Well, two reasons. Number one, hopefully your spouse is a brother or sister in Christ. And so if you are unfaithful, that is not loving towards your spouse. But also, if you introduce impurity into your marriage, that also will disrupt the church. And many of you all know firsthand how infidelity in a marriage between two individuals that are in a local congregation can disrupt the church. I've seen it happen. But then finally, he says in verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It is easy for love of wealth to usurp our love for neighbor, isn't it? It's easy to do that. And when that happens, our relationships change. In fact, it is easy for love of money and wealth to usurp our relationship with our neighbor, with our church, and even our relationship with God. And in fact, I, I don't know the statistics because this is a hard thing to measure. But I would say that if you had to list the top five things that are impeding an individual's ability to be close to the Lord, in that top five would likely be an individual's love of money. And I don't want to just say money. Love of wealth. So it's not just the dollars and bills. It's what the dollars and dollars buy. Actually, the truth is, the majority of people who have a love of money actually don't have a lot of money. They have a lot of things that they bought with their money. That's really what, what we find. We might become less charitable, less gracious, and more selfish. Often loving someone, and this is where it ties into brotherly love, loving someone often means that we have to sacrifice for them. And sometimes sacrifice means that we forfeit wealth for the sake of others. Now, next week... We're going to look at money in the church as it relates to the church. And I'm going to tie it into Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at how the brothers and sisters in Acts related to one another. And how those individuals did not consider their wealth their wealth. Their wealth was for the community. It was for the community. And I believe that we've lost that. We've lost the idea that money 
has been given to us to steward for the sake of God's kingdom. That the first thing that we do, in fact, you've heard this, when you get your paycheck, one of the first things that financial wizards say is pay yourself. Pay yourself. Now, what do they mean? They mean take a percentage out of your paycheck, and the very first thing you do with that is to put it in your account. Pay yourself. Saving. Now, saving is not a bad principle, but the pay yourself first model is not biblical. In fact, all the way throughout the Bible, what does it say? Your first fruits go to the Lord. Recognize that He didn't say all your fruits. The Lord didn't take everything because He knows that we have to live. But your first fruits go to the Lord. And just as a caveat, now again, I don't want to get into practicalities because that's not what this is about, but you'll see how this relates. I will often, people will ask me about tithing. Now we're going to get into tithing. That'll be next week about whether that's biblical or not. It is, but we'll get into it next week. But they'll say, well, when do we, how do we tithe? What exactly is tithe? I said, well, literally it means 10%. That's what it means. I said, but there's a bigger principle. At, at, and they said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. 10% of what? I said, well, what you've earned. What you've earned. And they said, no, 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 no. Is it 10% of the gross or of the net? That's what they want to know, right? And don't lie, everybody in here has, all, has, has thought about that. You've all, you've all tried to do these, these gymnastics in your head. Is it the gross or the net? Because if it's the gross, then that's more money, right? Than the net. Well, what does the Bible say? It's of your first fruits go where? To the Lord. Your first fruits do not go to Caesar. Your first fruits go to the Lord. Some of you all right now are like, darn it. You have more one more week to be unbiblical, okay? <laughs> If a loved one gives you an object, you usually cherish that object. See, this is where money is tied to ownership. I want you to think about this. If someone were to come to you and give you an object, you love that object, right? As an example, a few years ago, a, a dear friend of mine gave me a very old shotgun that his grandfather used. I say gave. I bought it off of him because it was during the estate sale, but he, he charged me very little for what it, its real value. And when I say value, I don't mean on the marketplace. It was worth hardly anything on the marketplace. But the value of it to my friend was nearly priceless. This was the gun his 90-some-year-old grandfather had with him at all times. In fact, it was with him on the day that he died. He died in his truck on the side of the road, just kind of waiting there. He might have been hunting squirrels. Who knows? And he had this shotgun with him. And he used it so much that his fingerprints to this day are still embedded in the receiver of that shotgun in the metal part. You can see his fingerprints in there. And so I got that shotgun, and I cherished that shotgun. 
I cherish it. Not because of the object. It's not the object. It's not the shotgun. It's got rust on it. It's got, it's got scratches in the wood. It's not even altogether that accurate. I've missed a lot of squirrels with that shotgun. Maybe that has more to do with me than the shotgun, but that's another story. But it's because of the individual who gave it to me. Now, that should be the way we relate to money. That we don't love the money, but we love the individual who gave us the money because of what it means. You see, God has given us this wealth to utilize for kingdom purposes so that individuals would would know and be known by Jesus. That's why you have it. And you might say, no, 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 my money's used to eat. And so I have a roof over my head. And so I can get to work and things like that's what my money is used for. Absolutely. Those things are necessary for us to live. And so God has given it to us so that we might live for what purpose? For His glory. We need to reevaluate how we think about money. Sometimes we think this wealth is mine. I've worked hard for this. And I would agree that almost everyone in here, if not everyone in here, has worked hard for what they have earned. And if you're retired, it, you, you, you have earned that retirement. You've earned that retirement. You worked hard for it. So I would agree with you. But here's what I want to ask you. Who in his providence afforded you the career that enabled you to have wealth? I don't think anybody, there are no Powerball winners in here, okay? And if there are, what I want to know is, why are we not in a, in a, in a, in a pristine building right now? Okay, that's all I want to ask. Who afforded you the providence to have the job to gain your wealth? That's not by accident. Who maintained your health? Think of this. Who maintained your health to afford you the opportunity to go to that job in the first place? And who in His sovereignty has held back the many crises that would have stolen your wealth? Because I, I, so a, a, a dear pastor friend of mine shared with me one time that the majority of people are one or two crises away from being destitute. And I believe that's true. I believe that's true. That someone, if they have been wise in how they've handled their finances and their, their livelihoods, might be able to escape one crisis, but maybe not two, and certainly not three. But the Lord has stayed that. Wealth of any amount or of any kind is a kindness of God. It's a kindness. Therefore, we love the giver, not the gift, 
And when this becomes a reality, we will give as He has given to us. And that's how money is tied to brotherly love. Our third point this morning is our relationship to wealth is a matter of trust. We have been given wealth to steward for God's kingdom purposes. And when people hear stewardship, like I say, with regards to money, they often think of saving money or investing in the stock market. But hoarding money can be just as dangerous as spending money frivolously. Now, I have told my parents, and we have told Crystal's parents, that while we appreciate it, we do not need an inheritance. We don't. Crystal and I, we've worked very hard. We've been fairly smart about how we have spent money. She has, not so much me, but that's another story. All right? But the point is, is that I don't want our parents working all this time just to hoard money in a bank account so that when they're dead, we get a big payoff. That's not right. And here's why I say this. If that happens, here's what's going to happen. That money is going to go to kingdom purposes in the first place. So here's what I say. Use the money for kingdom purposes now. Do it now. Go on mission trips. Fund a missionary. How many individuals have said, you know what? I have $200,000 in the bank and I have... I have, I have no use for it. I have nothing to spend it on. I guess I'll just write it into my will to my kids one day. Or do you know that you yourself could fund four or five missionaries in one year with that amount of money? Because let's face it, the kids are just going to buy a Land Rover. Okay? But a missionary is going to be sharing the love of Christ. You may say, I can't go to Africa to be a missionary. I can't go overseas to be a missionary. I can't go to China to be a missionary. No, but you could fund somebody. You might, there might be a small church that's struggling to because their parking lot is broken up or they need an added-on building or something like that. What if you help fund that? You see where I'm headed here? Hoarding money for the sake of hoarding money is just as unbiblical as spending it frivolously. And you may say, well, my children need that money. They need that inheritance. Now, I don't want to step on toes, but I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be frank. If your children need you to die, in order for them to be financially stable, then once you're dead and they receive your money, in short order, they will no longer be financially stable. 
because money will not save you. It won't. It just won't. I've told my eldest son multiple times, especially when it came to college, I said, I'm not paying for your college. I'm not paying for your college unless I'm confident that you are going to give yourself to it, that you're going to really work hard and do well in it. Because here's the deal. You had to finish high school. I was going to get you that. You do not have to go to college. And for me, college is an investment, and I don't make bad investments. So I'm not giving you money to go to college and me make a bad investment. And he understood that. He understood that. So we raise our children to understand the value of money and its purposes. The author of Hebrews Hebrews reminds us of the words that the Lord told Joshua following Moses' death when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So massive wealth locked up in a bank vault will not help your brother or sister in Christ in a time of need. It just won't. And oftentimes we hide it in a bank bank vault for safety's sake, right? Now, I believe having money and savings in case something happens. Air conditioner breaks down, car breaks down, health crisis happens. It's good to have money in the bank in order to take care of that, okay? That's not bad. That's not bad wisdom. That's good wisdom, right? However, hoarding finances for the sake of every little thing is not trusting the Lord. It's just not. I know churches who believe in saving every single... They don't do hardly any ministry. What they do is they get money in and they put it in a savings account because they're so afraid that something may happen, yet they don't do any ministry. I'm like, what is the point? Why does anybody give to the church at all if they can't see ministry going out the door? Folks, I don't give my tithe every month. I do not give my tithe just to see it to go into some bank account. And this is why I am so excited and interested about us moving from this location to another location because I don't give my tithe just so that we can keep up a building. I don't want to do that. I want to see us ministering to folks. I want us to see us bringing children in here and ministering to them, going out and ministering to the masses. That's what I want to see us spending our money on. We do not save when we save money. We don't save out of fear. We save it so we don't spend it on frivolous things. And so I don't want to offend anybody, but let me just be clear. Your vast collection of American Girl dolls or your rare stamp collection is not going to feed any... Does somebody in here have American Girl dolls? I knew that, Crystal. This is why I asked you before I preached this, so I wasn't going to get in trouble. All right. I have no idea why American Girl dolls came to my mind when I was doing this. Probably because I'm terrified of them. Crystal used to own these, not those dolls, but similar dolls when we first got married. And I'd wake up and they'd be staring at me. And I'm convinced that she would place them in front of me so that when I'd wake up, they'd be looking at me. Okay? But anyway, your comic books, 
your American Girl dolls, your stamp collection, your whatever is not going to help feed or clothe anybody in need. Okay? It's just not. Brittany, it's not sinful for you to have an American Girl doll. <laughs> that away, Brittany. Just, just blame it on somebody else. Goodness. Well, I, we'll have to have a conversation with the giver of that doll. Penelope, you're still good, okay? All right. But I do want you to think about this. In 2019, the average American debt on credit card debt was $6,200. Now, I actually thought it would be a lot more than that. But that $6,200, not like paid off at the end of every month. By the way, individuals who do that are called freeloaders. All right? What I mean by that is you, you accrue money on, uh, on a credit card to get points, and then you pay it off at the end of the month, and so then you get money left over. See, I don't call that freeloader. I just call that wise. Right? Wise. But this is... And this is money on a credit card that individuals are paying interest on every month. And the average total debt in 2020 was almost $100,000. Now, that may not sound as much as you think, like house and everything combined. But remember that there are a lot of individuals, a high percentage of individuals, who've already paid off their houses and their cars and stuff. So if you base this on just individuals who have debt, it's probably a lot higher. And so in our current society, a certain amount of debt is normal. It's the cost of living today, but much of our debt is accrued because we're impulse buyers, right? We're impulse buyers, and so we just buy, buy, buy because we think buying stuff will make us happy. But it doesn't. I should say it makes us happy for about a moment. I bought a Kawasaki mule last month, two months ago, because I thought mine had died. Derek resurrected it from the grave. But I have a Kawasaki mule. I was very excited about that Kawasaki mule. I got it on a Saturday. On Monday, I was already online trying to figure out ways to improve it. I wasn't happy with it the way it was. I was already trying to improve it. And that's just the way we are, right? Money does not buy happiness. Even a happy meal, Drake. And we forget that the Lord is our provider of joy. And we do trust that the Lord will provide. And throughout the Old Testament, especially in Proverbs and Exodus, the Lord reminds us that we are to be giving the Lord our very first fruits of our wealth, whether that is the harvest or livestock or our dollars and change. And it is hard to give to the Lord our first fruits when they are all hoarded or they are being given to Capital One. The Lord is my helper. Let's close. And let me close with this. John D. Rockefeller, an oil tycoon, many of you all have heard his name, was once asked, how much money is enough money? And he famously replied, 
just a little bit more. Now, in today's amount of money, he would have far eclipsed the wealth of Bill Gates. Rockefeller had a, had a wealth that this nation had never seen before and honestly hasn't really seen since as far as individual wealth. And he said, how much is enough money? And he said, just a little bit more. But to his credit, and many people will, will call him greedy and all these things, but did you know that he actually gave a vast amount of his fortune to different charities and to his church? He regularly gave. Which goes into a quote that John Piper has said when he was asked if it was a sin to be rich. Is it a sin to be rich? And he said, and I paraphrase, it is not a sin to make a lot of money. He said it's a sin to keep a lot of money. And by keep, I mean money in the bank as well as the stuff that we purchase with it. The Lord is our provider. The Lord is our helper. He provides us with wealth to meet our needs. He will also help us to use it for kingdom purposes if we ask. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Not what is your treasure. Who is your treasure? Who is your treasure? Let us treasure the Lord and His work and use the abundance of blessings that the Lord has given in order to make His glory known among the nations. And so I would say this. I pray that the Lord would bless you with more money than you could ever imagine. Now you're thinking, oh my gosh, it's the prosperity gospel. I do. As long as you're giving it away. Helping brothers and sisters in need. Helping the advancement of the gospel across the world. Building churches. How does the gospel advance across the world? By building churches. That's how it advances. That's the most common way that it advances. Christians uprooting their lives, moving to other areas, and building churches. We are the richest nation that this world has ever seen. And Christians have a vast majority of that wealth. Yet we are impoverished spiritually because we've retained that wealth because we view it as our own instead of us just being stewards of that wealth. The Lord is my helper. So ask Him to help you, help us 
know how to use our money for kingdom purposes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we love you. And Lord, we ask that you would bless our bless us as we as individuals discern how you would have us use what wealth we have been given that we would use it for your glory that we would honor you with it and that we would not be frivolous with it I pray Lord that one day and I don't know Lord if this is your intent but I pray one day that when we meet you in heaven and we see the saints who have gone before us and we see the saints that will come after us that it will be revealed to us how our wealth has impacted the kingdom far beyond than what we could imagine and my prayer is that we won't be ashamed. Help us to be charitable and gracious and giving individuals. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.